When Nelson Mandela was a young man in South Africa in the 1950s and 60s, blacks and people of color weren't allowed to vote or own land. They weren't allowed to live where they wanted, marry whom they wanted, or travel where they wanted. They weren't allowed to use certain bathrooms. I had gone and urinated in a toilet room for whites only. Well, we can say I want to wash my hands in a white lavatory, and then they arrested me. By the way, what he meant was that he didn't want me to use the word urinating in the book. He was pretty proper that way. I remember seeing the signs for white and black restrooms when I first went to South Africa in the 1980s. The facilities for white people were marked blancas or net blancas, whites or whites only in Afrikaans. It reminded me of pictures of the American South in the 1950s. In South Africa then, just like in the Jim Crow South, it was illegal for a black person to use a white restroom. And yes, Mandela was arrested for doing exactly that. It was a mistake on my part. I didn't read the sign. Mandela had a tendency to be amused when recalling even the harshest memories. Part of this was pointing out the absurdity of the situation. Part of it was that he never wanted anyone to see him sweat. You may be wondering, with all the epic things that happened in Mandela's life, why focus on him using the wrong bathroom? It's important to realize the insidious way South Africa's racist system worked. Brazen atrocities like police brutality broke people down from the outside. Petty atrocities about bathrooms broke down people from the inside. Those petty laws let people know on a daily basis they weren't fully human in the eyes of the system. So many of Mandela's stories revealed the soul-destroying reality of life under apartheid, South Africa's legal system that mandated separation of the races. The roots of apartheid began in the 1600s. In the 17th century, the Dutch sailed to the area that is now Cape Town, colonized it, and fought wars against the Khoikhoi and the Sand people who had been living there. Those Dutch settlers became known as Boers, or Afrikaners. Their language was Afrikaans, a simple Dutch with some German and African influences. They, and the British who came later, took over the entire region. How proficient? Are you an Afrikaans? Are, are you completely no, I can hear Afrikaans without, without difficulties. I can read it without difficulty. But to speak it, it's a bit difficult. I spoke better Afrikaans in, in, in jail than I do here now. In the 19th century, South Africa became a British colony. And the English fought wars not only with the Africans, but also the Afrikaners. The Boer Wars were bloody, an early sign that whites in South Africa were willing to fight for land and status. Mandela later studied the Anglo-Boer War. The British won and signed a peace treaty in 1902 with the South African colonies, which banned blacks from voting. In 1910, South Africa became a self-governing territory that was semi-autonomous from Britain, but legalized racism only got worse. In 1948, the Nationalist Party, founded and run by Afrikaners, campaigned on an explicit policy of racial separation known as apartheid. After they took over, they made racism the law of the land. 
A new phase in the political life of South Africa began when Parliament was opened at Cape Town. And remember, this was all happening in 1948, three years after the end of World War II. The foreign ministers of Great Britain, the Soviet Union, and France met to discuss Secretary Marshall's plan for restoring stability and peace to the nations of Europe. Apartheid was born in South Africa as colonialism was dying in the rest of the world, and the movement toward greater human and civil rights was growing almost everywhere else. In America, the civil rights movement gained steam as a response to racist Jim Crow laws. And in South Africa, the Black Liberation Movement grew and strengthened to fight against apartheid and racial injustice. We have made it very clear in our policy, South Africa is a country of many races. There is room for all the various races in this country. That was Mandela in one of his first TV interviews in 1961. The first and most powerful black resistance group was the African National Congress, the ANC. It was founded in 1912, six years before Mandela was born, two years after South Africa became independent. It was the oldest liberation movement in Africa. Its mission from the start was to win equal rights, including the right to vote for people of color. Mandela was drawn by the group's mission. There is not a single political organization in this country, inside and outside Parliament, which can ever compare with the ANC in its effort to unite the people of South Africa, to put them on the same basis, to advance at the cause of equality of the races. He joined the ANC as a young man in 1944 and was utterly dedicated to it. You hadn't been a member of the ANC before? No, 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 no. I only joined in 1944 and joined at the ANC Youth League. The ANC was a pretty moderate organization when Mandela joined. The ANC Youth League was the engine of radical change in the organization. These young men pressured the old leaders to be more aggressive and to directly confront the authorities. Two of the other members of the Youth League, Walter Susulu and Oliver Tambo, became Mandela's lifetime friends and colleagues. They were closer than brothers. Mandela led national strikes and protests. He gave fiery speeches. He was a fierce debater. In the ANC, in addressing any particular problem, we normally start from opposite poles and uh, debate the matter thoroughly and then reach a consensus, which makes our decisions very strong. It was the most important and enduring relationship in his life. So anything that the ANC or Africans didn't begin, you didn't want the ANC to participate in. You wanted yes, the quite. ANC to be first among everybody. Absolutely. Mm. Mm-hmm. In those early years, Mandela was against whites, Indians, and communists joining the ANC. In the early 1960s, infighting about ideology and tactics threatened to splinter the ANC. Mandela was battling to make the organization more aggressive when the movement to end apartheid took a turn. I want to take you back to when, in 1960, when the state of emergency was declared. 1960 was a big year for Africa. More than a dozen African states renounced colonial rule and became independent. But South Africa was moving in the opposite direction. The West was not interested in us. They were supporting the apartheid regime, making it possible for them to have the resources to suppress the legitimate aspirations of the majority of the population. 
We fought, we stood on our feet, we fought back. Although we had no hope of defeating the enemy in the battlefield, but nevertheless, we fought back to keep the idea of liberation alive, almost at the end of the struggle. The ANC began staging a series of mass strikes and protests against the government. The government responded with force in a township called Sharpville. In March 1960, thousands of black people gathered in Sharpville, about an hour south of Johannesburg. They were peacefully protesting apartheid laws, but the South African police tear-gassed them. The protesters threw rocks in return, and the police opened fire. Police of the white minority government opened fire on several thousand members of the non-white majority. They had been demonstrating against the racial discrimination apartheid laws. The South African security forces killed scores of black protesters. 180 were wounded. 69 men, women, and children were killed. The shooting became known as the Sharpville Massacre. The atrocity created headlines around the world. The U.S. State Department and the U.N. Security Council criticized South Africa's behavior. Ten days later, the government declared a state of emergency and arrested 2,000 people, including Mandela. I was arrested with uh, other comrades and taken to Newlands Police Station, N-E-W-L-A-N-D-S. This is after the state of emergency. Mandela was released on bail, but things got worse after that. A week after the arrests, the South African government banned the ANC. The one party that represented the majority of South Africans was now illegal. So the ANC had two options, disband or go underground. They went underground. If the organization is going to operate underground, the first thing we have to do is to create a machinery to enable it to operate underground. Communications, planning, logistics, everything had to be hidden. And it was not very easy to arrange a meeting. It was a very difficult operation indeed, which entailed a lot of risk. And it requires a new approach now to organization. Where do you have to change your whole or psychological approach and that you accepted the idea of operating under a climate of illegality. There were also the personal consequences for Mandela. Now he was part of an organization whose activities were criminal. Mandela had come to another reluctant conclusion. The idea of going underground was really to start a new era of uh, violent activity. He had realized that nonviolent protest just wasn't working. The revolution would have to take another path. The ANC had known this day was coming, but they weren't really prepared. Mandela and his close colleagues of the ANC all suddenly left their homes. Mandela kissed his kids goodbye, hugged Winnie, and became an outlaw. At first, he stayed in a different place every few nights. He stayed with friends and at safe houses. He abandoned his three-piece suits for overalls and work boots. He was always on the move. After a brief time in Johannesburg, he headed further afield. These were places which were far away from the people themselves. 
I stayed for over a month in uh, the sugar plantations in Natal. Everywhere he went, he pretended to be someone else. I posed there as an agricultural officer. At the end of 1992, a few weeks after we had started our interviews, Mandela invited me to go with him to his house in the Transkai. It was in the Eastern Cape, the remote and rural area where he had grown up. This felt like and was a kind of breakthrough in our relationship. It's not like he had many house guests. His small house was in the middle of nowhere, in a kind of empty green landscape that South Africans call the Veldt. What may have been thriving villages in his own time were now mostly empty shells. His house was modest. In fact, Mandela based the design on the last house he lived in at Victor Verster prison before he was released. He'd liked that house very much. We had a routine in the Transkai. Early each morning, and I mean early, 4.30 or 5 a.m., we would set out from his house and take walks in the countryside. He loved these walks. I didn't bring my tape recorder. For him, the walks were private, meditative. We had only known each other for a few weeks at this point, and then suddenly to be with him in his home in a remote part of South Africa, with no aides but bodyguards, no staff but his cook, Miriam, felt like an extraordinary level of trust. I didn't want to betray that in any way, but I wanted to be able to use it to get a better understanding of him. Without the recorder, And in the countryside, Mandela seemed more free to talk intimately. But that doesn't mean he talked a lot. He mostly liked to walk in silence. And our walks sometimes took three or four hours. But when he wanted to talk, I tried to use that time to get him to talk more personally. While we were walking, he pointed out the shack that had been his first school, the boulders he slid down when he was playing with other boys, the fields where he once looked after sheep, He told me the story of how his given name was Holishlashla, Mandela, and that on his first day of school, a teacher had named him Nelson. He told me how on that first day, he had worn a cut-off pair of his father's trousers because he did not have any of his own. In Johannesburg, before we left for the Transkai, we had been talking about his life underground. One morning while we were out walking, Mandela recalled a time when he was underground and went to visit his oldest son by his first wife, Evelyn. It was nighttime, and the boy asked him why he could only visit secretly at night and why he couldn't ever stay. Mandela told me that he had said to him that there were millions of other children that needed him too. I imagined how difficult that must have been for a father to say and for a son to hear. I couldn't imagine saying it to one of my own sons. When Mandela told me this story, I looked at him for any sign of emotion, but he was looking toward the horizon. In 1961, if you drove north out of Johannesburg for about 10 miles, you'd come to a small farm in a suburb called Ravonia. There, you might notice a tall, bearded black man in overalls raking leaves, carrying trash, or serving tea. He didn't talk much, but if you asked him his name, he would say, David Motsamaya. White South Africans used to call such workers garden boys, even if they were grown men. 
But David Matsumai was much more than what he seemed. He was the most wanted man in South Africa. How did you choose that man? One of our clients was David Matsumai. One of his clients from Mandela's time practicing law. The ANC had realized that Mandela moving from house to house every night was just not sustainable. They decided to find a more permanent place where Mandela and other leaders could meet and plan and train. That place was called Lily's Leaf Farm. We talked about this one morning in the Transkai. We were having breakfast after a walk. He had tea with milk, never coffee. He didn't like coffee. He would have what he always called porridge with hot milk. He always asked me if I was hungry or wanted something. I tried to eat before our session so I didn't have to interrupt the conversation. In the Transkai, though, he didn't eat until after our walks, and I was hungry too. Yes, darling. Are you going now? I'm going now. Have you had breakfast? Let's get right to Lily's Leaf Farm. You moved there in October 61. How did, that, how did it come about? Who bought the house? Let's not go into details about that, because some of the people you know are still alive, and um, methods which we use are still going to be used today. And uh, we have, are not yet free. And it would not be proper to disclose how we acquire property for ourselves until we're in power. Even though it was 1993, more than 30 years later, Mandela didn't want to go into the details at the time because the ANC and black South Africans were still fighting for power. He didn't want to give away their secrets in case they needed to use them again. I did what I could. It's sufficient to say that the movement bought Lily's farm and we had somebody who acted as a friend. The ANC bought Lily's Leaf and it looked like a working farm, but it was a front. The man who bought it was Arthur Goldreich. He was an artist, an anti-apartheid activist, a communist, and he was white and Jewish. If you bought a house in Rivonia at that time, no black man could buy it. So we had to get a white man. We had to get a white man whom we trusted, who would keep the thing quiet. That was the consideration. So Arthur Goldreich moved in with his family, and they pretended to be ordinary white South Africans. In reality, the farm became the ANC safe house, its underground headquarters, and its primary meeting place. Mandela moved into a back room on the property, a shack. What was your um, regimen like at the farm? What was your no, day like? I would wake up. Go and make breakfast, I would then study a guerrilla warfare. Then I had to make sure that the workers were not aware of what I was doing. Reading papers, mm-hmm. reading newspapers, reading books, because I was uh, just an ordinary worker. Mm-hmm. So I would make sure that I hide away from them. He grew a beard and wore overalls. That's right, quite. <laughs> uh, you, did you like having a beard? Well, it was a different uh, type of appearance, which I liked, because I was able to pass off sometimes with people who knew me. It helped to perfect my disguise, and I grew to like it. Mandela liked it when people didn't recognize him. He enjoyed playing a role. And um, one day, my mother came to see me, and uh, one of the builders, a colored chap, says, is that your wife? 
Then my mind. I said yes. You said yes. Yes, I said yes. Mandela was trying to keep a low profile from the other workers, but he was reading everything he could get his hands on: books about guerrilla warfare, communist pamphlets, histories of the Cuban and Chinese revolutions. He was preparing for a new stage of the struggle. I read Klausowicz, as I said. I'd read The Commando by Dennis Reitz here. Two books in Malaysia. Uh, this book uh, on the Philippines, Born of the People by Louis Taruk. And I read the works of Mao Zedong. Mandela felt strangely happy. He felt a sense of contentment on the farm. He told me it reminded him of his childhood in the Transkei. Winnie would sometimes make a secret visit on the weekends with their two daughters. He enjoyed playing a role. No matter what Mandela did in his life, he tried to do it, as he would say, properly. When other workers would come in to eat, he would serve them. I undertook to cook for them and uh, to disguise my presence there. And uh, I would make tea for them. And one day they were conversing. I called them to say tea is ready and they came to the kitchen and I served them in the kitchen. I took a tray and uh, cups of tea and sugar. And I eventually came to a fellow who was telling the story. And uh, I then offered him the tray. And uh, he had his teaspoon, you see. But he was concentrating more on his story than me. Would they recognize their waiter for who he really was? And then I started walking away to the other chap. And when I was walking away, he noticed me and he says, Waiter! And then I came back and... <laughs> And uh, so I was enjoying it, you know, to know how people treat somebody whom they believe is uh, inferior to them, you see. And that's how they treated me. But other workers on the farm did know who he was. One even risked his safety to greet Mandela. I used to remain inside my room when there are visitors. But one day I went out, I didn't know if he was around. And he saw me. And he said, Mr. Mandela. So I smiled and I greeted and I passed very fast. Then I realized that no, security was no longer so good here. For a while, Mandela had been concerned about what he regarded as very loose security at the farm. He was right about that, and it would come back to haunt him. He started to take risks by venturing off the farm. He'd travel around the country visiting fellow ANC leaders, sometimes posing as a chauffeur wearing a long, white car coat. Sometimes he took public transportation and pretended to be a night watchman in a gray overcoat. In 1962, he took it a step further. <laughs> 